Sorry we didn't do this last week. Something happened, I heard. Um, yeah, well, honestly, though, if you guys, any of you are still feeling any of the effects of that storm, let us know. I know you've probably heard that announcement before, but really, like, if you've got damage or, like, we moved back in this morning and had a deep clean in our kitchen, and it was gross, and some of you might be stretched thin and you need some help, so let us know. We want to come alongside you. But Well, recently at work, we had our yearly fraud awareness training, and uh, usually the trainings we do once a year, there's a long list of them. They're kind of a bore. This one's really cool, though, because it gives you this behind-the-scenes look at what people do in fraudulent activity, kind of the espionage of stealing information. And uh, so it's kind of exciting, I guess, more exciting than typical corporate trainings. But um, there's also just some really practical uh, applications of it, too. I guarantee you everyone in this room has experienced fraudulent activity in some form or fashion, right? Especially in the age of the smartphone where you've got text messages and emails and people are telling you, hey, Netflix, we're here to let you know your account's being hacked or uh, Amazon and your subscription's uh, going to run up, so you better click this link and update your information. All of this is uh, basically trying to sneak in and steal your information, right? Trying to get your banking info or hack your device. This is actually a full-time illegal industry that people have devoted their lives to. Uh, basically, what they want to do is present themselves, and they know what to say, they know how to pressure you, they know how to trick you into thinking that they are good people, and they're, they're looking out for your good, they want to help you. And so, you know, that's a little concerning, right? You know, you don't want to mess up and, you know, lose your phone or give away your bank info. The good news is, most of the times, the people that are trying to do this are easy to spot, right? You just got to look at their email address, and it's this crazy coded number, and you're like, that's not a real person. Or uh, you might have something set up on your phone, so maybe you do uh, give something away, but then they don't have the code to back it up, right? That two-step authentication. So there's lots of things we have in place that protect us. And uh, this yearly training that I have to do every year uh, to identify and avoid fraudulent people is uh, much of the same thing that Paul is looking to do in our passage this evening. He's wanting to equip the Roman church and, uh, you know, bringing this letter to a close, uh, help them see and identify some outside threats that could be looming. He would regret to not do so. And so here in Romans 16, verses 17 to 20, Paul makes it a point to imprint three important things for this church and for us, too, to help us combat and avoid deceptive people that want to harm our faith. And those three things are for us to be alert, to be wise, and to be encouraged. Be alert, be wise, and be encouraged. So our first point, to be alert. The other day, my son Bear and I, he's two years old, so he's in the stroller still. We're out on a walk, and, you know, we're enjoying the sunshine, and we've had a ton of construction in our neighborhood the last year, and so we've got all these big trucks that he calls diggers, and so we're digger hunting and just having a good time. And all of a sudden, this woman turns the corner and what typically is a woman running with her dog, you know, she'll just go to the other side of the road and we'll be on her way. She makes a beeline right up to Bear and I, and it catches me off guard. And as she approaches and she's catching her breath, she warns us that there's a dog a few streets over that attacked two people. Now, this is, I think, scary universally. Like, we're all afraid of this happening to us. But my wife will tell you, this has happened to me like three or four times everywhere we've lived. Total. Not every time we live somewhere, but... Three or four times, I've been chased by a dog when I'm on a run. So this happening again is like, come on. Like, <laughs> I have the worst luck in the world. Maybe God is telling me I need to stop running. I don't know. I don't know what he's saying. But um, 
And so, you know, this is a, a scary moment, and, and sure enough, I look down the street, and there's an ambulance, there's a fire truck, there's two police cars, there's police officers searching in the bushes looking for this dog. And it's amazing how in a moment like this, you can go from just cruising and relaxing, enjoying the day, to completely hyper-aware and focused of your surroundings. You know, you go full-on dad mode, protective mode. And it could have been really easy for Bear and I, without this woman's warning, to just walk right into the path of this dog and be in serious danger. Verses 17 and 18 is Paul doing just the same thing. He's sounding the alarm, making the Roman church aware of what kind of people exist out there and that might come and try and take advantage of them. They are to, as he says, watch out for and avoid a particular type of people, a people that he says cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to what they have been taught. Basically, what Paul is saying is they need to look out for false teachers. Now, what they were teaching is not specifically cited here, okay? But what is said here is most important, which is that what they were saying and what they were teaching could block or obstruct people and make it difficult for them to understand the gospel. And so you're probably wondering, well, that's really serious. I would like to know what it is these people were saying so I, too, can identify and avoid such teaching. Well, the good news is, outside of this passage, we have tons of writing in the New Testament from Paul and other writers about the different false teachings that existed and were combating against the gospel. One such group would be the Judaizers. They were a group that taught that you must become Jewish and keep the entire Mosaic law before you could come to Jesus and receive salvation. It was a works-based salvation. However, the true gospel that Jesus taught, teaches us that we are saved by grace, right? Paul says that elsewhere. He says we're saved by grace, which is unearned favor from God, nothing you can work for. And it's being saved by grace through trusting in the person and work of Jesus. That makes our salvation not our own doing or work, but a gift from God. There's another group that's called the antinomians, which is a fun way of saying anti-law, this is a group that taught the opposite of the Judaizers, and they would say, there's no need for any laws or any rules to live by. Instead, you're saved by what you think and what you believe. That's all you need. And that has no bearing on how you live or what you do with your physical bodies. However, God's word teaches us that faith without works is dead. It's hypocritical. That true faith is transformative. It makes us more like Jesus, both inwardly and outwardly. And so there cannot be a disconnect between our spiritual self and our physical self, that we are whole people, right? And so Jesus had to physically die for the punishment of our sins and then be physically raised from the dead so that we could be saved both body and soul. What we think, what we say, what we do, all matters, both bodily and spiritually. It's all interconnected. So what about us today, right? I don't think any of us see on Reddit, you know, Reddit antinomian group that's hanging out, chatting about no laws or the Judaizer Facebook group, right? But I think it's safe to say that these two misunderstandings of the gospel still do exist today. It just might look differently. Either adding to the gospel message or removing or weakening the requirement to live in holiness. For example, self-centeredness 
is a way that we can add to the gospel. Here's what I mean. Something we might have heard commonly is the prosperity gospel, okay? And the prosperity gospel at this point, I think, has been caricatured and represented so cartoonishly that it's easy for some of us to disassociate ourselves from its core message, which is a gospel about the worship of self. And so, just in case you're not familiar with the prosperity gospel, just to define terms, this is a a movement in the last 100 years where people would teach that God is supposed to, and it is his duty to make you healthy and successful and rich in all areas of life, and that he promises that. And if you don't receive that, something's wrong with you, okay? It's a really messed up gospel. However, I think commonly today you turn on your TV and you'll see two people in a suit and a dress sitting in their mansion saying, you know, if you mail in $5, you'll be healed of your terminal illness. And it's easy to just turn off the TV and move on with your day, right? That's, it's easy to ignore that. However, I think truthfully today, a lot of people that might teach some form of prosperity gospel has changed their messaging to become more marketable. And it's adapted, so it's more widely accepted. In a lot of ways, I think it's working. And so now, it's a message that's softer, it's more deceptive. It's a deceptive way of adding to the message of the gospel that people are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. For many, that's actually just the doorway into a different gospel, which is about becoming the best version of yourself. It's about self-fulfillment, self-realization, maximizing on your potential as a person. Being a winner, not a loser, right? The goal in life in this gospel is to be the best at everything, to have the best body and appearance, the perfect routine and weekly schedule, a flawless marriage, more followers and notoriety on social media, a lucrative career, or the perfect parenting style. All of these become someone's purpose and goal in life, right? And the gospel is now simply a means to an end, and that end is yourself. It may surprise you that this is actually a form of legalism. In this false gospel, there's no rest. There's no resting in the person and work of Jesus. That's just the beginning, so you can now work toward a more fulfilling life. You will be one of those hamsters on a wheel, right? Never ending, running in circles and circles seeking life by working toward it. And this is cruel, friends. It's cruel because when it's not working, you're the one who's blamed. You're blamed because it's your sin, right? Your sin or your lack of faith is the reason why God is not making you healthy or successful in every area of your life. However, the true gospel is that Jesus freely is offering you eternal life when you give your broken life away and you embrace him as the only true source for eternal life. Rest for the faint-hearted. And to be the satisfaction that your hearts long for. A great example of this was put on display by some of the captains of the OU softball team when they won their most recent national championship. I'm not sure how many of you guys follow college softball, but I'm an OU grad, so I'm a huge fan. I'm very proud of them. And recently, these girls, uh, there are three of them, they're the captains of the team and their coach. They were, you know, being interviewed after they won the championship. And an ESPN reporter asked them, how is it that they maintain joy throughout a season that's full of extreme pressures, right? 
all year long. They played, I think, 62 games. They had extreme pressure to break the longest winning streak in uh, softball history or to win another national championship, right? If they didn't, it was a failure. The whole season was for nothing. The answer that they gave was not the one that they were expecting to hear. Grace Lyons shared how joy can really only be found in Jesus because softball is a game full of failure. It's a roller coaster in terms of winning and failing. One day you're celebrated, the next day you're forgotten. Jada Coleman followed up by describing how after winning her first national title her freshman year, she felt nothing but emptiness for the weeks that followed. And even though they work hard not to lose, right, they want to win, losing in softball was not the end of the world for them. Why? Because she had found Christ. And this is saying a lot because in this age of college athletics, athletes can actually profit on their name, image, and likeness. So if you're successful on the field, you can be successful in all areas of life, including financially. And outside of a few college football players, actually some of the most successful and well-paid college athletes are women, whether in gymnastics or softball. And these women have been at the apex mountain of their sport, and yet here they are publicly witnessing about a truth that they knew that the world needed to hear. That life and joy cannot be found and sustained through being enough by your efforts or in maintaining success or greatness. No, actually, life and joy can only be found and enjoyed to the fullest through trusting in and resting in Jesus Christ. Secondly, there's the weakening or diverting from the emphasis on the Christian life to be holy as the Lord our God is holy. To walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. This second contemporary challenge to the gospel is very much an issue that has even appeared in some of our own camps. There has, by God's grace, been this beautiful movement in the American church to recenter everything back on the gospel, which is exactly what we needed, right? There has been this incredible movement where there's been healing and restoration for those who are drowning under the guilt and shame of legalism. And yet, anytime there's something really good, sometimes good things can be misunderstood, right? And so sometimes people might misunderstand grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once called this misunderstanding of grace, cheap grace. Cheap grace is Christianity without repenting of sin or the discipline to fight your sin. Many believers, either in preaching or small group or one-on-one coffee dates, with the right intentions in mind, right, to emphasize grace, may be tempted to downplay the severity and consequences of sin because it's either uncomfortable or they want to avoid the trap of being legalistic or sounding legalistic. And so they shy away from the important work of Scripture and the Holy Spirit to correct and rebuke, which ultimately is a work of love by our God, where he wants to help us see clearly just how ugly sin is, how destructive it is, and in comparison, see how much more beautiful, satisfying, and good Jesus is. Or maybe you yourself, at different times in your life, have desired cheap grace instead of dealing with your own sin. I'm guilty of it myself. There's no mourning period or sitting in the consequences that your sin produces. 
Instead, it's really easy to just want to move on, right? Like, ah, yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, let's move on. Like, we're cool, right? In these scenarios, we don't really want the gift of God's grace to overcome sin. We want grace to enjoy sin more. However, maturity in the Christian life is not the outward self that you muster up and advertise to the world while inwardly you're corroding and need help. It is the hard work of facing our sins, right? Looking in the mirror and doing that deep work on your heart to turn away from your sin. To be open and honest with yourself about where you're at with your struggle with sin. To be honest with the Lord and to look to him, to cling to him. To be honest with community, right? To be honest with the people you do life with, that they know the real you and how much help you need. To know when you need prayer, to know when you need encouragement. When we do that deep work on our hearts, we learn and we relearn how toxic and messy sin can be. And then Jesus, this is the best part, right? Jesus meets us there in our sin. And we experience how much healing and redemption and goodness is to be had when we walk closely and authentically with our Savior. We don't want to miss out on that. Here's my last, port of, my last point about being alert. While studying this passage, something was made clear to me that I'd never really noticed before, but it's super relatable to us today. You know, what these teachers were doing uh, is they were coming from the outside. They were traveling, okay? They would follow behind Paul when Paul would go to a church and teach and encourage or send a letter. They would know, and they would come behind him and pretend to be the next great thing, right, in the church and, and spread their false teaching. And, you know, it's really hard for us to imagine today at Mercy View that happening, right? If someone got on stage and the Andrews are on vacation and this random person's up here and is, like, saying the craziest things, like, within 30 seconds, Orlando and Dax and Jacob Sweat would escort them out this door right here, right? It wouldn't take long at all. What's actually really scary is how much more accessible we are through our devices, like our phones, our TVs, and laptops, there's so much content out there that over time, it's discipling and shaping us more than we realize. And so, what can we do to be on guard and to discern what is good and true? And that brings us to our second point this evening, which is Paul calling us to be wise. In verse 19, Paul celebrates their earnest desire to be obedient. It's a great thing. But he also warns them that they need to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Basically, Paul's afraid that their eagerness to obey is going to lead them to obey the wrong ideas. So how can we know what is good and true, friends? Well, God has told us as much in his word. It's the entire reason why we have a written word. God's word has revealed to us the story of the world, that God made everything good, and then we introduced sin into the world, which corrupted all good things, including ourselves. And so, one significant way that God has helped us relearn God's original design for what is good and how to live a good life is that he has spoken to us the law. And through the law, he's revealed to us and reminded us what is good and what is evil. And then Jesus has come along and fulfilled the law in order to set us free from what is evil and live the good life with him. 
Therefore, the call to live in holiness and righteousness is not legalism, nor is it a checklist of Christian chores. It's actually a call to experience what God has always intended for us, to be fully alive and human. God's word and his teachings on how to be righteous and do what is good is not God restricting us from enjoyment. It is God opening the door to the better and greater thing. But just to learn what is good and evil is not enough, right? That's why Paul calls them, and for us too, to be wise, because wisdom is the living out and the application of what we know to be good. Obeying God's word is life-giving. But, as Paul warns, obeying the narratives and teachings of this world will be destructive for your soul. And so I love the kind of wisdom Paul imparts here in verse 18, where he pulls a rug out from these false teachers, and he gets to the heart of their whole shtick, right? Not only do false teachers come and lead you away from the true message of salvation, which is serious enough on its own, but also he wants them to know that these teachers do not care about you. They do not love you. They only care about themselves, right? They're only there to satisfy themselves. That's what our passage tells us. All they care about is fame, wealth, and their own self-importance, and they want to use you to those ends. There are many gifted speakers out there who will say things that sound good in the moment, and maybe they're saying things you want to hear, but a lot of their messages are not what you need to hear. In fact, be cautious that the fact that the message you may like is because your sinful flesh is saying, amen, brother, Well, the Holy Spirit is saying, no, no, I'm trying to lead you in the other way. So, just because someone is a gifted or charismatic speaker does not mean that they have God's blessing on their work, their life, or their ministry. And I think it's uh, a simple takeaway for us. We need to be wise and mindful about how we give our time, energy, and money to. Think twice before you pay for that subscription or hit that like and subscribe button or contribute to that person's Patreon or GoFundMe. Be mindful as to how many hours you consume visual and auditory media and what they consist of. Not to avoid the world or culture, right? We're actually called to be cultivators of culture, to create and make beautiful things in the marketplace, in the arts, in the home. Just be wise about how you go about it. Be sure you are immersing yourself in what is good and righteous and true. That way you can discern and glean what is true and good from the world, right? God's truth all truth is God's truth, okay? But not everything someone says is going to be true. And you can also then divert from the things that people might say that are less helpful and unbiblical. This requires time devoted to knowing God and to knowing his heart for you. To allow time immersed in his word and time with his Holy Spirit so that the Spirit can teach you how to live and be in this world to become well-versed in God's design for things like human sexuality, vocation, parenting, what it means to be human, how to walk through tragedy and hardship, the purpose of life and history, and so much more. In one sense, what is most likely common is the challenge of identifying whether or not we're giving too much time and energy to things that might not be evil at all, right? They might be good, but they're not exactly building up our knowledge of God and his word, okay? For example, 
I'll just tell on myself, I know way too much meaningless information about 1990s video game consoles. I don't know if you can relate to that. Or the history of Oklahoma Sooners football. Or the entire filmography of Japanese director Hayao Miyazaki. None of these things are evil. They're pretty cool. They're fun. But the amount of time or money I've given to some things has sometimes been in vain, right? I'm like, ah, might have not been the best use of time. And if I'm honest, and this is really serious, there have been many times I've had to decide to stop watching many shows and movies or listening to particular podcasts because they do, in fact, expose me to evil. And I've noticed the effect that they have on me, causing me to feel gross or deeply sad or causing me to be less loving and Christ-like toward others. And going too long in that direction can make you susceptible to false narratives or living for the momentary instead of what is eternal. Instead, give yourself over to wisdom and be immersed in the person of wisdom, Jesus Christ. In doing so, you can perceive the world and culture through the eyes of Jesus in his word and engage it like he does, redemptively and for the glory of God. And that brings us to our last point this evening. And it's Paul calling us to be encouraged. I don't know if you noticed while we read that, but Paul kind of comes out of nowhere with like a right hook punch, going full-on coach speak here, seeking to build the confidence like a team about to take the field. He uses really strong imagery here of, in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I don't know about you, but that is like super cool. <laughs> This gives me the same vibes of that awesome photo of Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. If you've seen a picture of Muhammad Ali, that is the one, okay? You would know what I'm saying. And even though it's important for him to warn them, there is no need for this church to fear or be discouraged. Yes, be aware. But more importantly, take heart, Christian. Because as Paul says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And he will be with you every step of the way. Is the enemy and those who serve his goals the cause of many problems in the world? Yeah, absolutely. But take heart, friends, because Satan loses. In fact, Paul's wording here about crushing Satan should sound familiar to you because it's been preached many times here at Mercy View. How in Genesis 3.15, in the very beginning of time, after the fall took place, and everything seems to be in doubt. God tells Adam and Eve, our first parents, and I'm paraphrasing here, it's going to be okay. I'm going to make this right. Even though, uh, or he says, Eve, through you will come a child that will crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent will bruise his heel. Pastor and professor Jim Hamilton makes this remarkable connection between that passage and in Mark's gospel, at Jesus' crucifixion. Hamilton points out that Jesus was crucified on a hill called Golgotha, which means skull. And it's when Jesus is on that hill, hanging on that cross, that Satan thinks he's won. But actually, the very thing that Satan used to try and defeat Christ got turned on himself. And Jesus crushes the head of the serpent by triumphing over death and the penalty for all sin, disarming and defeating our enemy. And now, for the Christian, as you face every day, 
you too share in that same victory over the evil one. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 to 11, we're given this behind-the-curtain glimpse into the spiritual reality of our victory over Satan through Jesus Christ. Starting in verse 10, it reads, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they, meaning Christians, have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, which is Jesus Christ, and the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Y'all, passages like that make me want to run through a wall. And here's what it means for you in your life. When you roll out of bed each morning and pray to the Lord to give you strength, our enemy feels the weight of Jesus' foot on his head a little more. When you own your sin, turning away from it, and throw yourselves onto Jesus, that weight gets even stronger. When you tell your unbelieving friend, whom you always see a double shot, about the beauty and the glory of the gospel, and they begin to believe, that weight gets even stronger. When you have a disagreement with someone in the church and the two of you reconcile and choose to love one another, Satan is crushed a little more. When you turn down an opportunity to coast as a parent and instead push through the tiredness and spend time teaching your children to sing worship songs or to learn the New City Catechism, Satan is writhing in pain. And someday, not long from now, a day is coming when our enemy, a day that our enemy is dreading, a day in which our passage promises our enemy, be, our enemy will be dealt with once and for all. And so, friends, I hope these few verses are reminding you of how much you have to live for. It's passages like these that make me excited for life, not dread it. There's a lot to be mindful of and many things for us to consider when it comes to the challenges and false narratives that want to compete against the gospel. But what you should take away more than anything is that Jesus has already won. And whatever you face in this life, you will not face alone. He will get you through all of it. He will show you the way forward. He is perfect wisdom. He is the light, he is the lamp that lights your path. So stick close to him, cherish him, make much of him, and you will live a full life. Let's pray.